Welcome to Blood and Spirit, the podcast for Black families evolving. I'm your host, N.J. Malay Ali, and I want to welcome you to season two, which is so exciting. We've already completed season one, where we explored family culture in Albany, Georgia, my hometown. And in season two, we're going deeper into specific dynamics of black family life. My guests will bring perspectives, experiences, and insights on issues of ritual and tradition, communications, marriage, and so much more. Blood and Spirit now has a sister city. When my oldest son was just one month old, my married family moved to South Philadelphia, where I stayed for most of the following 25 years. You might say that Philadelphia is where my second raising took place, because my experiences there definitely set the tone for the rest of my life. Wifing, parenting, working, and grown-up social interactions began really in earnest for me in Philadelphia. There's a real resonance between me and the people of Philly. I never found them standoffish with the non-engagement that lots of Southerners associate with large northern cities. On any day that I step into town, invariably an instant connection strikes up between me and somebody that I meet. So as my second home and a place where I established many relationships, the city of brotherly love is a natural sister city. I will be drawing on some of those relationships to provide expert and contrasting views regarding some of the topics that we will be discussing on Blood and Spirit going forward. That starts today with Episode 1 of Blood and Spirit Season 2. My guest today is Nana Kofi Tuda, who will bring a West African, Ashante, and Akan perspective that, will draw, that we will draw on frequently. Nana Tuda will help us to make connections between traditional African ways of being and our current family and community practices. Again, our purpose is to evolve. Going back, Sankofaing, as it were, we can retrieve lost value, handle it appropriately, and use it to guide and fuel our next levels of progress. For over 35 years, Nana Kofi Tuta has been ancestrally led to Ghana, where he built bridges of understanding between Ghanaian-born Africans and Africans born in North America. As the officially installed Agogo Inkabom Hene, or King, he shares a kind traditional wisdom regarding family and community, and I'm so happy to welcome him here today. Welcome to Blood and Spirit Podcast, Nana Tuta. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Before we get started, I'd like to ask you something that I ask all of my guests, because I think it's such a wonderful window into culture. And that is, what is your favorite non-alcoholic drink? I guess it has to be the one that I make up, which is consists of organic carrot juice, kale, beets, uh, apples, celery, uh, garlic, ginger, combination of organic juice because, again, I've learned to acquire a taste for it because I know it's so good for me. So that's one of my favorite drinks. Right. So how long has that been the case? Oh, at least the past seven, eight years. We actually alternate uh, preparation. I'll do the vegetable drink and then we'll do a uh, uh, kind of a protein shake. And then other family members will do smoothies that have, you know, more of the uh, fiber content to it. Mm -hmm. So uh, we, every day we're doing something. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. 
You experienced a calling that caused you to recognize your ancestral connection to the Akan people of Ghana. And over time, you absorbed a wealth of knowledge about Akan traditions. So I'd like to talk about that. But before we get into that, I want to find out what was your family life like growing up in South Philadelphia? Well, um, I had a wonderful upbringing. Um, it was back in the day where you had uh, true community uh, in our African community. So it was actually two blocks of, uh, and I'll say African instead of black, um, African folks that uh, lived on the block. And uh, we had 25 mothers and 25 fathers and we did something down the street the word was back before we got home yeah. i grew up in a family where i had both uh, my father and my mother you know uh, loving parents in the home very supportive uh extended quote-unquote family structure with grandmothers and aunts etc so for me it was ideal uh, we played various games in terms of being able to be outside uh not concerned about any type of you know, uh, challenges that young people face now. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it was a very, very stable and uh, furthering upbringing. Wonderful, wonderful. Now, tell us about how the call to Ghana happened and how did you respond to the call? Well, you know, I think it's interesting to, uh, to start off with the upbringing because with all those fantastic things that I referenced, which was an experience for me, I still ended up falling prey to the streets, mm. um, which we know are ultimately decisions that we make. But there's also another avenue that um, as, as great as that uh, environment was in terms of uh, having, you know, multiple parents, etc., there were still things lacking. And one of the challenges for me was the self-image uh, perception because I'm dark skinned. And unfortunately, even today, that Willie Lynch phenomenon or of separation through colors, et cetera, still plays it out, but much more during that era in the 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. And so that lack of self-esteem and then becoming an overachiever, you know, as a result, I think, of responding to that, uh, eventually led, along with other things, to avenues of disillusioning myself to perceive I was someone other than. And so drugs, you know, became a part of the process. Um, the, the whole street life that many of our young people fall prey to, uh, with all my stable upbringing, I also was victimized by that. I bring that up only to say that the, the, the process of me being able to, to listen and to be able to be aware and open to another reality came as a result of hitting what they call rock bottom and then began to come up out of that. And in coming up out of that, I began to explore spiritual realities, which started out with my upbringing as a Christian. Um, and so therefore, I went back to church for a minute, but it didn't really hold me. Sunday school was more something for my spirit because I I've always been very studious and I began to explore and kind of absorb what the Bible had to offer. And then eventually uh, I was led and I'm using that word into Islam. And I didn't go as deep as Islam in terms of a lifestyle, but 
I definitely exposed myself to it. I would go out to the various mosques and have that immersion into that way of life. And I, I always say this, while I was doing that, I had Jesus Christ in my back pocket, just in case. I think this is important. Yeah. And coming out of that, it kept being revealed to me that I should move in this direction, move in that direction. So without being too lengthy, there was a host of exposures and experiences that I had, always seeking and searching uh, a deeper understanding of meaning of life, quality of life, who I am as a, as a person. And uh, so it led me in many, many different directions, Buddhism, Hinduism, even looked into Harry Krishna. I knew a, a, a person who became a Harry Krishna monk and we spent time with him. Uh, theosophy, Rosicrucians. And then one day I was, uh, someone, my younger brother, as a matter of fact, had told me about a person who was teaching classes in Southwest Philadelphia and that I needed to check him out based on all the things that I was exploring. And when I went to see him, he began, his name was Ra'unefra'amen. He was, is the uh, Shechem Shekham the Asera Set Society. And as he's talking, he is covering from soup to nuts, all the things I've been exploring. I mean, health and nutrition, spirituality, astrology, astronomy, and everything came from an African context, which floored me. The last place I thought I would end up was with an African reference in terms of being able to tie it all together. And again, I think that's important based on the era when we came up. We came up in the Tarzan era. Um, you know, in school, there was nothing uplifting that we were hearing about anything coming out of Africa. And again, it further shamed us. And uh, we, again, we're under the belief that uh, one, we not only weren't we African, but that is not something that we would even want to embrace. So that revelation, that exposure to have all of this wisdom, not only tie into the years and years and years of my pursuits, but it took it to a deeper level. It took it to a much deeper level. And so that's when, again, my path began to go deeper in that direction. And my, my ancestors actually had led me to this particular teacher. And it was out of the ancient Comitian paradigm that uh, he uh, brings forth his wisdom and his lifestyle. But the ancestors said that that lifestyle most resembled the ancient Akan lifestyle. Let me interrupt you for a moment, if I might. Something uh, very interesting came across my desk this morning in terms of being led. It was a little thing that someone put together and put on social media about an individual who was trying to discern the voice of divine guidance. He kept getting what you might call impulses to do a particular thing after he made a prayer about, let me know what your voice sounds like, right? So he followed those impulses, you might say, or followed that voice and wound up bringing milk to a family that was praying for it in that moment. So it really kind of illustrates that there's a specific ex experience that goes with hearing a divine directive, being led, being guided. So give us a little bit more of a window into what it's like to be led by the ancestors. What did that really feel like? What did it look like? And what did it sound like? The mechanism that puts us in touch with you know that all-knowing aspect of our being in our universe is part of our makeup you know there's many different labels many different depictions of this 
Um, but there's an all-knowing aspect of us. There's a unified aspect to us that unifies us with creation. There is a all-knowing aspect to us so that all knowledge is connected to that divinity, that supreme wisdom, male-female energy. And then there's the all, quote-unquote, powerful aspect of our, our beings. And then it's also further segmented, you know, our ability to have compassion, our ability to love, our ability to protect ourselves. All of these qualities are part of our makeup. Ultimately, our guidance should come from within. As a matter of fact, the word education comes from the root word educare, which means to bring out. Mm-hmm. We've been taught that education is something that goes into you mm-hmm. and you memorize it and you regurgitate it. Mm-hmm. So therefore, true education is that which is already within. And then ultimately, it is for African people, that individual guidance and, and wisdom that gets revealed to you gets acted upon, but then it can only go to its highest levels through a group reality. And so for myself, it be, you know, there's a, one of uh, the people that have been very instrumental in terms of helping us expand the Akan culture and the various spiritual, scientific, and the mundane aspects of those manifestations is named Odrirfo Kwesi Ra Nechem Pata Akan, which he is the Odrirfo, which means purifier of the Akwamu nation in North America, which is, are also aspects of the Akan tradition. And one of the things he identifies is that when you are reflecting and meditating and you're getting this information, there is a pull in your head. You can actually feel this energy is directing you. It is communicating with you. It's so interesting how we, our culture has been so misrepresented and so polluted as it pertains to things that, I heard you use the word that we hear these voices talking to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the European hears that, they're ready to put you into a sane asylum, okay? Mm-hmm. And the reality of it is we know that there's not an actual vocal cord, there's not an actual activating of our, our audio you know, mechanisms, but that impression and that direction comes to us. And so, the ability for us to tune in, listen, and follow is ultimately who we have to become as African people once again. So it's very important. And I must uh, uh, bring in now, that ability to do that is greatly hindered at this point in time. You know, they talk about we only use so uh, many brain cells. You know, they speak about uh, our limitations in terms of what our capacity truly is. In the interim, when you hear about oracles, and I'm going to cover, hopefully you have an opportunity to cover, what is the criteria for an African culture to actually exist? Because there are common denominators that we can call it African culture. And then there's certain specifics that we have to call it a specific culture, whether it's Yoruba or Khan or Kamitian or Eve or Ga. That is a manifestation of various cultural expressions, but there is a common denominator that has us called African. And one aspect of that is that we believe and and move upon that there is a male-female supreme being, always a balance. It's not a male supreme being. It's not just a female. It is a male-female energy. 
And that energy, as I mentioned, being all-knowing, et cetera, but we are at a point where we still have to evolve back to that reality. So in doing that, the mercy of the Most High and his, the, the emissaries and her emissaries are the angels, archangels, the what the Khans call the Obasuns, the Europeans call the Rishas, the Committeeans uh, 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 call Netaru, are aspects of the creative spirit that manifests itself in this physical reality to enable us to be the Supreme Being in a relative environment by bringing on those qualities. But in the interim, while we're getting back to that all-knowing position, an oracle is something that is an objective way, and there's many vehicles that oracles work through, but it enables you to tap into. It's a training, no different than any other science. But once you're trained to utilize that, it is an intuitive vehicle. It is a vehicle that, that enables you to tap in to this relative environment to tell you what it is that you should be doing in this particular situation based on these uh, multiplicity of variables to be successful you know, in life. So that all-knowing aspect is uh, objectified through an oracle system. That's very important if we're going to move, you know, because I use oracles regularly, not as much as I used to, used to because ultimately you're training yourself. You're recognizing patterns. They say, I can, I can read you. You know, I can see what's going on. And that's real. But there's those other aspects that I'm not totally 100% confident and I look into that. So this is part of the paradigm and the underpinning and foundation of an African culture, of a foundation of having that knowledge and, 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 and infusion of everything that you do between that male and female supreme being, the aspects of that supreme being, which we call the angels, again, Obasuns, Orishas, and then our ancestors. Very important because we believe in reincarnation. If you, don't really, if you don't believe, and I'm using belief systems, but if reincarnation isn't part of your reality, then African culture has no function. No African culture has a function because it's based on the fact that not only are we immortal in terms of our spirits, and then we come here in a physical body, the culture then takes into consideration that those three qualities of being all-knowing, all-powerful, and all um, uh, and being that one with everything, when it gets to this physical environment, it becomes relative. They're absolute realities. The unity, the all-knowledge, and the all-power are uh, metaphysical, you know, static principles. But then when you come to this reality, that's when the relativity comes. And that's when you need to have these, you know, no different than a particular situation calls for you to be more studious. Another one calls for you to be more reflective. Another situation calls for you to be more laid back. Another one calls for you to be more, uh, and I don't like the word aggressive, but more energetic in its approach. All of these principles are what we call deities or what we call obasuns. And therefore, when they're saying we're worshiping more than one God, or one more than one. No, we are acknowledging that on this physical plane, that 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 static uh, universal energy manifests itself no different than what happens with a light uh, when it hits sunlight hits a prism, a glass, and it fragments into a multiplicity of colors. And that's the basis of African culture. And the culture is here to have us to grow and develop to be divine. And that's the whole purpose of African culture. So you were on your journey. And you encountered the Asara Set community based in a Comedian concept. 
Can you explain a little bit about what Comedian means and how that carried you further along the path? Very interesting uh, that I said that my ancestors led me to the Sarasette Society and, and what I was told and what the head of the society was told was that I am an Akan and that they were bringing me to him because at that time there was nowhere else that my ancestors felt comfortable or confident enough that I could get the ancient, you know, ways of our Akan people as it was manifesting itself either here or on the shores of the, the motherland. And so they said, because the ancient Comitian most resembles the ways of the Akan, they said they're going to drop me off there for a minute so I could pick up on it. And that minute turned into 11 years. Uh, and in, you know, uh, now I can say, you know, and again, I go back to Brother Adrifo, who has a lot to do with connecting the dots, that the, the Akans were actually in Canute prior to Kemet. And so when you look at them moving into Kemet, you can see, even on the pyramid writings, you see Indinkra symbols, you know, in the language. You see this, the, the connections between the language. Please clarify where Kemet is, because a lot of people do not recognize that name, that language. Oh, okay. They, it's what's called Egypt. Okay. Okay, ancient Egypt, uh, which is a Greek word. So we try to move away from those those identifiers. But yes, yeah, so, and and Canute was Nubian, and so therefore, these different titles. So the the exposure to that opened up the door to then meet and then go under the wing of Nana Okoku Sarpong, who is the, he is the paramount king or of Agogo, which is a town in the Ashanti region of West Africa. And during this process, it became more and more prevalent and more and more dominant in my uh, sphere of awareness that not only was I an Akan, but I was an Ashanti because there are various manifestations of Akans. And this is important because you can be an Akan and you can be a Fanti. You can be a Khan, you can be an Achem, you can be an Aquamu. You can be various manifestations of an Akan. So it was revealed to me that my spirit was an Ashanti. And then moving uh, with Nana Kwiku uh, Sarpon and the elders of Agogo and the citizens of Agogo, both in Ghana as well as worldwide, uh, we communed with them in, in the UK, we communed with them across uh, the United States. And I began to be that African born in America that would come to a, uh, a gathering. It would be 200 Ghanaian born Akans and me, you know, it was just that type of phenomenon. And so it, it, it progressed on until the point where I personally became aware that I was an Asini, which is one of the eight groupings of the Akans. So all Akans have eight family units that, that, it, that make up the clan system. And so the awareness of that totally opened me up to understand that it was from families that we were taken away. We tend to, we, we go back and we, we realize we're African, I always use the analogy of the name changes that we went through on these shores. You know, they, they called, they started off calling us niggers and then uh, Negroes, colored, 
you know, uh, we went to black and then we went to African born in America. And then we went to, I'm sorry, we went to African Americans and then we went to African born. Every one of those steps was a, a, a progression of an awareness and a movement to get us back to where from whence we came, we call it Sankofa, go back and fetch that which we have uh, left behind. Um, however, we've gotten to that point where we're saying, okay, we're Africans, we know we're Africans, we're proud of it, and uh, we're born in America, and we kind of left it there. But we're still sitting three miles off from the shore where we were taken from, because we were taken from specific cultural expressions. We were taken from specific, well, specific families which have a cultural expression. And you say, well, what's the, what's, what's the importance of that? If, in fact, reincarnation, which is a part of African paradigm and, and culture and structure, that means that, and, and you're eternal, that at a certain point in time, if five, six hundred years ago, your great-grandmother, great-great-grandmother, uh, was an Akan and an Aseni, I'm sorry, an Akan and an Ashanti, as well as a particular family, in my case, an Aseni, and then it's matrilineal. So for the Akans, the bloodline of the mother is what continues the gene pool. So therefore, if in fact my great, 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 great grandmother was an Akan, an Ashanti, and an Aseni, and then she has offspring, and then the offspring has offspring, and then it comes and comes and comes down, and then I come back again under that downline, in that downline, then I didn't turn into uh, another cultural group. You know, it's no different than your own grandmother. You know, you don't suddenly, if you was a Roger, you know, and then you have a child, suddenly your child is not a Roger any longer. They're a Smith, your neighbor next door. You see, it doesn't work that way. So to be able to re-identify that is a spiritual process. The DNA will not take you there because the blood has been polluted, but the spirit has not. And so therefore, when you go back, to talking about that tuning in, those same ancestors that are around you, that, that are part of you, have been guiding you to take you to this point. But then there's this missing link that you have to tap into, but most of us don't know the importance of tapping into that last aspect of our identification. And that's why uh, venues like this is so important, so that they can hear and I can talk about what changed within us once we embrace that as a clan system, once we re-identify with our bloodlines and how that is totally uh, revolutionized, the way that we navigate our lives here on the shores of America and how we are perceived and embraced back on the shores uh, 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 of Africa. Is there a process for making that spiritual connection? With you, it was a calling that you recognized and followed. For other Africans in America who are seeking to know their blood and spiritual lines, how do you get to it? So many people are paying organizations to get the gold, the platinum, the precious resource of their DNA, which can be used in so many ways, and generally, historically, has been used against us. And so what we're really trying to do is connect with who we really are. How can we do that in a wholesome way? Every person that's moving towards African, their Africanness and the culture, some culture of Africa, no matter which one they may gravitate to or they have an affinity towards. One of the things that we, we all say is that we're spirits, we're spiritual people. You know, we've all, you know, we, we say religious people, but now we've moved that we're spiritual people, we're spirits. 
But when it comes down to that all-knowing of connecting with who we actually are, it's a breakdown. You know, we kind of see that we need this physicalness, which is where these DNA tests come in. We need to have some type of physical validation and direction given to us as a result of what is we're yearning to know. And that is who we are from a standpoint of spiritual, bloodline, lifestyle, etc. Uh, beings. So I can share with you what has happened with the, uh, and, and I'm using this term for the first time, it is called the Ashanti Inkunum Kurum in Philadelphia, and now it's even spreading out, uh, you know, beyond. Uh, and Ashanti Inkunum Kurum means Ashanti Victory Town. We used to, when we, and let me step back uh, uh, a bit. We talked about my experience in Agogo, and in your opening, you said that I was installed as the Inkambom Henny, which means unity chief or unity king in Agogo. So therefore, my responsibility, my, my, the jurisdiction of that in a stool is a vehicle that is a spiritual and a physical vehicle that is in ceremonies, and cultivation that is grooming leadership, you know, within the Akan, you know, because if you're in the North, they call them skins. There's different cultural expressions, but the stool is actually the seat of spiritual and physical authority, jurisdiction, the governing body for the Akan people, all right? So when you hear about the golden stool and that whole uh, story, of how Confonoche called down the golden stool uh, when the uh, Ashanti sort of individualized. So the Federation came when uh, the various paramount kings who were warring against each other came together and there was a spiritual signal given that this particular paramount king, Ashanti king, Nana Ose Tutu I, was the actual embodiment of the total Ashanti nation, which is where the golden stool was actually earthed and born. But it represents the spirit of the Ashanti nation, that stool. And so for us, you know, for myself, being in Agogo, being the Inkombomheni, I had responsibilities, I had and have responsibilities unifying. You know, not only I have to unify within myself, but the spirit of unity has permeated out in terms of the foundation building that we have gotten to, to actually become a emerging Akan Ashanti nation here on the shores of America. So with that facilitation and that learning, and eventually in 2013, now I, I was already, already aware through a process that I was an Ascendi. Now, how did I get to that uh, process? It was uh, one, it was very confirmed for me Right from the door, I was told I was a, an Akan, all right? Secondly, it became clear to me through guidance and through how do I end up in an Ashanti village feeling so at home and having people deal with me and talk to me as if I'd never left. So from that standpoint, it confirmed for me that I was an Ashanti because I have traveled and I have interacted with other ethnic groups. So that's an aspect of it. You start feeling that you're home, not because somebody told me that, it's because, and you know, you can't convince me because you like me. Oh, it is something that is internal. But then it moves to a point where someone had a dream about me being in the Senate. And then there are, and, and you know, I took it with a grain of salt, as they say. But I began to move around with the Ascendants. And again, that closeness that I felt with the Ashanti village in general, of all the eight clans, there was even a further 
uh, uh, grounding for me as an Ascendi. But then there were some signs because each uh, clan, the Adranas, the Saunas, the Ayoko, the Bretu, the Asenis, the Akonas, uh, and the Agonas each have totems that go along with the symbols that have, you know, meaning. So the Adranas is a lion or a dog with fire coming out of its mouth. And it's, it's the guardian and they have stories that go along with it. For the Asenis, the symbol is a bat. Now, when I heard it, you know, the minute we hear a bat, we start cringing because of all the vampire stories and whatever. But the actual quality for the Ascendis is peace. All right. That's what the bat symbol. And when you study the bat, you know, the, 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 the vulture, you know, is one of the most uh, nurturing, you know, beings or, or, or creatures that there is in terms of the way they take care of their, their young and whatever. So in ancient Kementian, they call it moot, which means mother. You know, so all of these dynamics are playing out, but we're not aware of them. When we become aware of them, then the bat, when I was in South Philadelphia and my mom, and, and, and you, you know, know for yourself, bats is not something that is prevalent. Pigeons and sparrows are prevalent. I had never seen a bat before. One day I was at a point where I needed to make some changes in my life and a bat shows up in the house. Years later, something happened, a very pivotal part of my life, a bat shows up, you know, in the house. Mm -hmm. Further, there was other signs. So there are different mechanisms that come to each and every person to have them confirm, you know, for them, what is their ethnic group? It could be a relationship that you have with someone. You know, this, this is my mother. I know it's my mother. Or this is my father. Or, you know, um, something that comes to you in a dream and you further follow up on it. But eventually your spirit will reveal it to you that you're settled in and evidenced by, in Philadelphia now, all eight clans are populated by Africans that are born in America that knew nothing about, you know, any type of clan system, uh, a Khan, a Sini, and all the other eight clans. But now they are, they are grounded in this. And so as a result of that, we now, have the foundation for an Akan Ashanti nation on the shores of America. And that's very important because a go-go cannot empower anyone, me as the Income Bohemian, to come here and actually organize a community which are made up of families and clans and elders to be their quote unquote leader. If it doesn't come from them, no one is like uh, 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 someone in Camden, New Jersey having a, a, a process where they bring forth a mayor. And then that mayor saying, well, I'm going to Philadelphia or either somebody sending him to Philadelphia to be the mayor. No, it has, it's a constituency, it's a jurisdiction. There's authority that has to be in place. That's the cultural foundation is the family. And out of the family units, four cons and every other ethnicity, it may be patrilineal, matrilineal, out of that comes your elders. And we have to talk about elders at a certain point in time, what that really means. And then out of that, the community decides, the families, the clans, and the elders decide, we want this male and female to be our representative of the most high supreme being and our ancestral connection here on earth to serve us in that capacity. And that's where you get your heads of your, your nanas and ohenis and ohemas, which they call kings and queens. You're describing signature aspects of a con culture within the African paradigm. What are some other very specific signatures of a con culture? The, the Sankofa bird, which I mentioned, is a very, very uh, important symbol uh, 
uh, signature because the image of a bird whose body is facing forward and the mouth is turned backwards is the reference to the fact that in order for us to move forward as African people, we have to look to our past. That's just not for the African that's born in America because of what happened with colonialism, what happened throughout the world. We all, as African people, need to go back and get that which we've lost. We've been uh, polluted and we've been bombarded with other people's ideas of either who we are or who they are and what, how we should be like them. But what's most important or just as important with that image of going back, the bird has an egg in its mouth. And so the egg is a signature or symbol of that which has life in it. It's precious. It, if you hold it too tight, it will break. If you hold it too loose, it will fall and break. These are very powerful signs and, and, and signatures that speak to the fact that we have to go back, not just get anything that's you know in, in our past because it's been polluted, go back to get that which has life, which that which is uh, reflecting of divine principle, you know, in terms of the essence of it being in connection with the divine law and order. However, the holding too tight means that if you don't understand that culture is dynamic, it has to be applicable to where you are. So the way that the Akan manifests themselves in principle is the same way that we manifest ourselves. But in practice, it has to be specific to environment. And so that's holding the egg uh, not too tight by having that. But if you hold it too loose, then you lose that divine principle aspect of it and the culture then spoils by not adhering to divine law. So these are for one image, and it goes deeper, much, much deeper. But these are the types of things that every aspect, the signatures that our ancestors brought forth within the culture are all there to teach us how to become more divine, how to be more interconnected, how to become who we really are, you know, which is all knowing, all powerful, and all connected beings to one another and to all of nature. You're talking about the capacity to flex to apply principles in different environments. So how do you see us being able to apply a Khan culture on the shores of North America? How is it done in the Ashanti and Konum Quorum in Philadelphia? And how can any individual who chooses to take on as many aspects as possible of traditional African culture, take that on and apply it? The the common ground with African culture is, as I said, can't, can't restate this too much, that it is designed, it recognizes that we're here in this human vehicle, but our goal is to become man and woman, which is a divine being. So human means earthly, you means earth. So the earthly man then has to evolve to become a divine. And this is what African culture does. Every aspect of it, thought, word, deed, acts, ritualistic, you know, repetitive, language, drums, garments, all has the same references to have you uh, become who you are. Now, when we look at what has uh, occurred with us here on the shores of America in terms of chattel enslavement is different from what happened to our brothers and sisters uh, on the continent where colonialism was their experience. When you look at 
what happened with us, we were totally stripped down. You know, even though we might have had certain values in place, and all, but I'm talking about stripped down from the systems of our ancestors as a lifestyle across the board. And that, that, was, that was strategically done. You know, they separated us based on if we can't communicate with each other, language, names, you know, everything was stripped away in a very strategic way to bring us to this point where we are now. As opposed to our brothers and sisters, well, let me progress that. So that means that for us to have this conversation, you, myself, and any others of us, we had to go inward. You know, that we had to go to that spirit to have it direct us to get to this point because we didn't have the external frameworks at the deepest levels. You know, somebody said, well, it was like that back in the 60s. Oh, no, it wasn't, you know, because integration was happening, you know, all types of economic uh, uh, bridges and, 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 I'm sorry, economic barriers and various misdirections. All that was happening simultaneously when we had a safer neighborhood. So we can't confuse that with what it means to have our culture in place. Go to the other side and you find that colonialism didn't totally strip the folks, you know, from everything that they were able to do. So the language was able to stay in place. The uh, oftentimes, you know, the drumming and, and the dancing and various things. They have a lot of the culture and they're raised up in it. However, taking it for granted and not understanding the importance of not letting that egg get too loose and allowing other things to come in to pollute and erode your culture is what has been happening on the continent. Whereas for us, when you know that somebody's kicking your butt and you know that we've been down these different avenues to alleviate that into it, and it's not to be found, and now we start to go back into something that's starting to give us that peace and that presence and, 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 and all those things that we are here to, the joy, the 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 family, economics, I mean, all those things in a different context is what we are bringing forth over here, which means that at the end of the day, our brothers and sisters have to learn from us as to why is it that we are moving back and, 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 and have to do a disclaimer here. I am not speaking down or in any disparaging way about anyone's particular religious persuasions and what people's belief systems are and what it is that they feel uh, or know, may know, that may support them from, from one day to the next, whatever political ideology that you may have, socioeconomic classes. But I can say this, that the culture, when it's put in place, is a unifying principle. And African culture in general is unifying for all Africans. And your specific cultural expression doesn't disunify you with your brothers and sisters. It connects you because you're coming from the same source and body of knowledge, but you're able to do it in your own specific way. And so therefore, you, you know, our brothers and sisters that are practicing culture and doing various things, but then they, they become Christians or they become Muslims or they become Buddhists or they become uh, what we call over here, you know, Democratic Party, they may call the NDC over there or the MPPs, the Republic, and they become someone else's approach to life now is being intertwined and infused into the culture, and you can see what's happening to them. It is a, a, a slippery slope that they're sliding down, whereas we're going up a more sure-footed uh, uh, journey to get the Sankofa and go back to who we were, where they're losing it gradually, 
because it's not happening. It didn't happen the way it happened to us. And so therefore they know it's problems, but they have not been able to really identify it. So culture over here, first of all, means that we have to go back to universal law, divine principles, and then utilize that in the context of who we are. One example, I was told one time, Nana, how can you practice the Akan culture without speaking tree, all right, which is the language of the Akan people. And language is very important because African languages are more than just communicative mechanisms. They are actually, they have different levels to them. You know, to use the Kamitians as an example, it was three different levels of communication. One was the hieroglyphs, which is that image is worth a million words, and it's all, you know, be speaking spiritual and divine. Then you had your commerce, language that was used for business. And then you had a language that was used for communication. So within the Akans, the tree language is a spiritual language. It is a language that ultimately we want to get back to, but that is not a precursor for us to be Akans and to practice Akan tradition here on the shores of America, because if we are manifesting the, for instance, uh, the greetings, rather than saying hi and bye and see, you, you know, there is greetings in the Akan that say uh, Ma Chen, which means I send you the energy of the morning, Ma Chen. The second one for the afternoon is Ma Ha, which means I send you the energy of the afternoon. The, the, the evening greeting is Ma Jo, and then the night greeting is Daye. All of these, these science, it rec we recognize that there's different energies that are manifesting themselves at different signs of the day. And so therefore, yes, to have that language and to speak it is something that we're moving back to. But in the interim, we are living the fact that there's different energies at the evening. We are aware of that. Even though we may not be able to articulate it through a language, we're descriptive of it with our English language. So these are just examples of how ultimately, yes, we want to go back to our native tongue. Um, there are other aspects of, as I had mentioned to you, I had listened to one of your podcasts and the brother was talking about the, the drumming and his experience of being able to have spirit come to him to give him the, the, uh, the rhythms and the spiritual aspects of how his vibration through that drum can heal and can do various things. Well, that is something that he got here. He didn't have to go to Ghana to get that. And this is what we also have to understand. People say, well, no, we don't do it like that over there. Well, not everything is to be done that way over there because we have our own group of spirits. We have our own uh, experiences, you know? Uh, on one level, when you talk about African culture, we are, would be the largest tribe if we didn't have our own bloodlines because you can go to California and y'all can have this same smack conversation or you can, you know, identify with upbringing and the songs that you grew up with all across America. These identifiers are what culture are, but we can't, we cannot, settle in with the fact that we are African-Americans and we got an African-American culture. Because you come from a bloodline, that's like starting over again. You know, as much as Kwanzaa and these other things have been a benefit to us along the way, they are not the same level of spiritual, metaphysical, physical phenomena from a structured standpoint that each of our cultures over time developed to be. And so therefore, why start over again? Why use something that's a Go back, and even if you're studying generic or general cultures, eventually, as long as you're aware that you do have a specific bloodline, a specific manifestation, and you are able to tap into it, you will be shown, as long as you're aware of it and you stay open to it. 
That brings us right to the core of some of the information that I want to share with our listeners. And that is about ritual and legacy. Because you're talking about processes, language, for example, as part of our rituals that hold so much understanding, visualization inside our heads, capacities, and so forth. The way we greet each other, taking in the different times of day and all those things. So talk more about ritual, what it means and what some of those rituals are that might be helpful to us in our growth. I'm going to talk about ritual on two different manifestations. Uh, just to clarify, it's very important we uh, define what we're talking about so we can all be on the same page and hopefully comfortable. The word ritual from a definition basically means repetitive, something that is repeated. And there's been con negative connotations of the come to Africa and they do all these rituals. Well, brushing your teeth is a ritual, you know, and not if you don't brush it, it's a ritual. You know, one's a good ritual, one's a good habit, you know, one's not good. So, but there are definitely, as we mentioned, those metaphysical, the metaphysical framework that all African cultures sprang from. Mm -hmm. That has to permeate itself throughout your physical existence because other than that, you have disconnected from your source. And so on, from an Akan standpoint, we have certain days, for instance. As a matter of fact, every day of the week is considered a sacred day or a holy day. And so let's just start with the, from the womb and move forward to the tomb. From a standpoint of names that are given, part of that spiritual process for Akans is that you actually not only come here with a specific mission that you are to accomplish, but you're also given the quote unquote power or that awareness and that energy electromagnetic energy to accomplish what it is that your mission is. And so therefore, when an Akan is born, one of the first things that happen is their soul name is attached to them by the day that they come through. And so therefore, as, as a, a male, you know, it's a different energy complex than a female. So we recognize that if you're born on a Sunday, then your name is Kwesi as a male. And it could be, a, it would be a Kosua as a female. If you're born on a Monday, uh, Kwajo, and the female would be Ajwa. Well, each of these names are also reflecting names of a spiritual energy that then is a signature that not only as people call you that, people say a mantra, it is an energetic energy that is coming towards you to help you be more Sunday born, Kwesi, to be more Ajwa or Kosia. So that's one aspect of the name. The other aspect of it is, is that you, that vibration actually helps you to, uh, to evolve into, as I say, becoming that, and it, it, it assists you in that process. So I'm saying just by that vibration, it identifies you, so they call your name, but then it also sends you energies based on that day of the week. Now, we, 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 so prior to that, there are ways to actually know what this spirit is here to do, you know, through our readings and different things of that nature. Now the spirit comes in. Now it comes in to a community that it knows it's coming into. And before, you know, we earthed and realigned ourselves as Akans and Ashantis, we came into nuclear family structures. I had a very good one, you know, as I mentioned, but it was not the clan system. And, 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 and an example of how the clan system works is that within each family, 
there's autonomy and the obligation and the ability to do naming ceremonies for the child. You have elders within the family. Counseling, you know, takes place. Raising this child up to become uh, a character being, which is first and foremost, and then to be able to know this child's mission, observe it, and further it for what it's here to do, as opposed to imposing upon it from some economic or social, you know, I think they should be a politician, or I think whatever, you actually, from an African context, are able to groom, cultivate, and further that child's mission so that as it grows, it becomes more of an integral part of a society because it's all interconnected. That autonomy within the individual clan is like a finger. And that autonomy and that ability to do what it does, and, and, and again, it goes from marriage rights, preparing for marriage rights, puberty rights, on up to eldership, all the way through, the autonomy of that family is there but then there are aspects of the community that have to come together, and that's like making a fist. And so therefore, that's when all eight clans come together. For instance, there's a day called, a sacred day called the Kwesi Dai. I just mentioned that Kwesi was the name of a Sunday born. So a Kwesi Dai, or Wusia Dai, uh, is another name for that. And it's, you know, Osair and the Kometian, or Bakala and the Europe, but there's connections here. You know, this is not isolated. But that holy day, every 42 days, technically, but they say every 40 days, but when you do the math, every 42 days is a spiritual energy that comes on that Sunday. And that's a day where there's two aspects of that we do. We have sacred places as the leadership of the society and of families. They're called stool rooms, where we go there and we commune with the spirit. Even prior to going there, uh, to tell you how things have fallen, our brothers and sisters say that, okay, uh, from 12 o'clock on, you have to fast, no sex, no, you know, no type of partaking, no eating, no doing whatever, so that you can prepare yourself to carry the spirit that you're going to serve the community with on this holy day as a leader, all right, within the community. Well, you know, sometimes I have to take a month getting ready, you know, fasting and doing whatever, you know, eating at 11 o'clock at night the day before you and to commune with the spirit, some heavy meal or doing other things. We know sex isn't bad, but we know the restrictive aspect, the discipline and the restrictive aspects of carrying you into certain levels of your spirit. You know, I, it's, it's something over here that we do differently. It's not that 12 o'clock thing. We do it based on spiritual guidance and, and et cetera. But what happens is that's the, that's the internal process, the spiritual side. Then later that day, after you prepared yourself, you as a leader within the community, male, female leaders, you go and sit with the community now. And you bring, it's a time for communion, it's a time, and it's a family gathering. So therefore people are bringing up issues, you know, family issues, and they're able to vet, they're able to get guidance and wisdom, and it's a healing mechanism. We used to do it, when we first started doing it, it was almost like a, a Robert's Rule of Regulation meeting, you know, it was all stiff and whatever. Now it's a flow, it's a spirit, it's in real time, and I haven't heard one person leaving out of there less than what they were when they came in, in terms of their, 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 their demeanor, their temperament, their enthusiasm, their understanding. All of these things are rituals. You know, these are things that are designed and they're, they're embedded into every aspect. When we come together and the elders in the form of our chiefs, queens, um, our hennies, hennies, or hennies, we are sitting in state. First thing we do is to come into a gathering and we greet the audience. And then we sit in state. And then the audience, or when I say the audience, the, the other members you know, of the gathering have to then come greet us. It's always a call and response. 
So we've greeted you, you come and you greet us. Then we call on, the, the next thing we do is to call on the uh, highest unseen spirits to come and be in this gathering, which is called libation. We're not worshiping ancestors. We're acknowledging that y'all not only exist, but you have an integral role to play. And so we are committing ourselves to working along with you through that mechanism of libation. Example of for us, the Sankofa egg phenomenon, in Ghana, when they pour, they use alcohol, schnapps, you know, various vodka, gin, whatever. And that's what they use and they call it spirits, you know, and that's what their connection is. For us over here, it was very clear to us that we have to use water when we pour libation, that it is universal, it is nurturing, it's what we're made of. Plus, so many of us have had challenges growing up with alcohol, you know, so why should we have to partake or use something that has proven itself to be detrimental? Again, I'm not condemning anybody that ha I'm talking about from a spiritual culture, uh, Sam Coford, egg perspective. We use water and everybody embraces water. And so these are examples of how what's happening on the other side. And, and, and trust me, everybody's not embracing us from the door with this. All right. They do see us as these Africans born in America changing, you know, but the spirit that leads us and who we are are strong. And what we're eventually and I'll give one example, the uh, Chani Henny, which is the chief linguist in the town of Agogo who's more responsible for having uh, his hand and head around culture and cultural values and meanings, even then the heads of the society, the kings and queens and hennies and hemmas, because he is the linguist, the spokesperson. You know, he's supposed to be able to articulate and have an understanding of what happens in culture. When he first heard that we was pouring libation with water, he says, oh, no, y'all you know, can't do this. Da, 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 da. And I don't know between, it was about a three or four month period, he was sent here to pour libation at one of our Sankofa festivals. And he pulled me and he says, Nana, when I first talked to you about pouring libation with uh, other than alcohol, I told you it was a taboo and you can't do it. He says, now I stand here before you and say that if I was in Saudi Arabia, I could pour libation with sand because it's not the, the medium that you're using. It is the essence behind it. These, you know, standing where we was opened up a whole revelation to him that it is not, that's the static aspect of it, as opposed to it's another dynamic and there's a Sankofa and there's an aid that we're going after and maybe I might want to take pause a little bit in some areas. As we learn from you, we can also teach. So, and it can go on. And let me just spoke one more thing. The uns unspoken, you know, you go in and I mentioned to you, we greet and whatever. One of the things is that everybody has to greet. If you have an issue with someone, you know, I'm not speaking to them. Well, for that moment, you have to touch them. You're going to have to take their hand. You cannot go into a round and skip them, you know, and go past them. Just that connector is just part of a unification piece. When someone comes and they're greeting me and we wear a cloth and it's a wrap. And so they'll come and they'll take this cloth and move it off of their uh, uh, left shoulder, which exposes their, their upper area on the left side. They're making a statement without saying anything that we hold, we harbor no weapons and my heart is pure. They're showing that left chest and they're doing this. And so therefore, when it's just not a idle exercise or an empty exercise and it actually has meaning, then that spirit is saying, my heart is pure. I hold no weapons. When they greet, they hold our hands a certain way with their hand up under the el elbow to say that we recognize the weight 
of your responsibility and we make a commitment to help you with that weight. All of these things are non-spoken signatures and ritualistic practices that as you go through a course of the day, it's always throwing you to a connected, higher spirited character building process. How are family memories and family traditions and memorabilia managed, curated and kept within the Akan culture? Like who are the keepers and what are the mechanisms for keeping those histories? One of the mechanisms for us is that we have physical environments that over years have evolved or either were created to be a legacy and keepers of the Akan Ashanti and Kurum Kurum culture and its expressions. In 1979, I purchased my first home in South Philadelphia, Fifth and Snyder. And very shortly, it became the spiritual meeting place, the first ritual gathering place for the Acera Set Society. It just, you know, gravitated towards that. And throughout the years, that space has facilitated naming ceremonies, Yoruba practices. It moved to a point where it became the Agogo Cultural Center because we had not earthed ourselves yet as an Ashanti emerging nation and village here in Philadelphia. So that Agogo was that extension of that reality that we knew on the continent of, of Africa and Ghana. Then as things evolved and we actually realigned our spirits and earthed the Ashanti in Kurum Kurum, it became the Ashanti in Kurum Kurum Palace, all right? Now, a palace is a, a royal place that serves the community. It's a place where different things take place. For instance, a Quesadai, we hold it there. There's stool rooms that are, you know, different. Uh, totems are, 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 are put in with explanations, and it is a, a place that houses the soul and spirit of the Ashanti in Kurum Kurum. That is no longer a building you know, that then can pass on, even what it's utilized for, it sits there oftentimes not. These people say, well, you can put a daycare center in there and do this and that. It is a spirit that has to uh, embody that location. It reflects the, even though, again, we have that unity piece that I spoke to you about. Our Busiako, which is the family members of the Akan clan system in Philadelphia, are still made up of people that have different, spirit or I'm sorry, religious ideologies. Some of them leave church to come to a quesadai. Others leave a mosque to come to an event. Others have more uh, Moorish American, you know, there's all, but they've been able through their culture to find a place where not only can we unify, but we also can grow and develop to deeper levels as a result of this system being in place. And so the, the, the whole mechanism of protecting that. So no one can come in there. You can't bring a politician. Our politics, Western European politics, partisan politics is not our way. Matter of fact, we don't even vote. We have what's called consensus process that's made up of elders. And an elder has to be someone that embodies a certain amount of wisdom. They're self-contained as it pertains to integrity. They're not what they can't be bought off and paid. They, 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 they're objective as, as much as possible. And we're all in, in a state of becoming. But that are some, they are some of the qualities of an elder that enables different elders to come together. So when you have an issue, and this shows the true democracy of an Akan society, is that every 
a person within the con society that can give their input, no matter how young or how old, has the opportunity. So let's say there's an idea that comes to a family that they want to do something for the community or it will impact the community. They will bring that to their elders. Their elders will then have a consensus within that, clean it up, bring it to the traditional council, which is the over-governing body, and then we will have a consensus based on what we're hearing. And either it will, it will come forth or it won't. And if it doesn't, there's always explanations given. There's reasons given as to why. The power of a consensus is that this, that nothing ever goes, people have had input into the process. It's taken to its highest level through their elders. And then the elders, based on all the input, have made this determination, not as a dictatorship, but as a process of filtering out and saying, here's what we see, and we've communicated with the, you know, the ancestors, we went to the oracles, and here's what we come back with. At that point, whether it went your way or not, everyone has to be on the same page. In other words, we accept this as the movement, whether it, it is quote unquote successful or not, or whether or not it happens the way we thought it should happen or not. Because as long as we're moving together, we're successful, whether that physical thing happened or not. And that's very important. You can't harbor energies to say, hmm, that's why I didn't work because y'all didn't do it my way. No, you have to be on board, put all your energies to making it happen, even though it wasn't necessarily your way. That is a uh, spiritual, you know, phenomenon that we are institutionalizing in what we do. In addition to that, lifestyle as it pertains to diet, nutrition, we're not saying that everyone is supposed to be a vegan or, but from our experiences and, and studying uh, anatomy and physiology and, and pathology and looking, we don't want to wait until we get to 67 years old for the doctor to tell us that eating this or drinking this has been detrimental. So we institutionalize these things so that in that environment, it's a vegan environment in, in, in terms of the palace. We now have a structure on the other side in Ghana, which is, we call it the, uh, the Sankofa Fiat, which means Sankofa House. And so therefore, there is a sustainable, there's a, it's, it's a, a solar, driven, solar, solar energy. We uh, harvest and recycle rainwater. It has, we have organic farming land around our compost, our, comp our, our, our complex, and it is, it is for the Ashanti and Kurum Kurum and others that have a same similar mission to be able to go and be in an environment as we, we, we interface with our brothers and sisters on the ground, but our brothers and sisters on the ground, 99% of the time are growing things with chemicals. They're using all types of animal fertilizer. They're doing, they're using genetically modified seeds. And that's what I'm saying. They have slipped down into something where they're dying as a result of this lifestyle. Whereas we're coming over there as a lodestar to say, here's another you know, avenue to consider. We're not imposing it, but we are ensuring that our legacy as we move back and forth reflects what it is that we have become here and therefore we created it there. there. One last thing on this legacy piece, and this is definitely not any uh, self-aggrandizement or but it's very important, you know, part of my uh, bio says that I'm a businessman, you know, and I've been an entrepreneur for the last 40 years in various degrees. The awareness that have come to me over the years about the type of business that I should do, the types that I shouldn't do has been in line with the spirit that I have and that we're growing and developing from an environmental standpoint. And so 
when I talk about this is the palace now, and we talk about we have this Ashanti and Kulam Kulam, you know, Sankofa Fie on the other side and all these fantastic things, oftentimes with us, what happens is, you know, if, if, if it was under the auspices of a particular quote unquote leader that or a few people that brought that into existence, we have not really created the sustainability for that through making sure, one, that the integrity of the mission is in place, but also that the infrastructure doesn't get repossessed for lack of paying taxes or maintenance issues or somebody else comes in with some idea and turns it into something that it wasn't designed to be. So we have actually executed and put in place trust under wills and li uh, living estates, all types of legalized mechanisms that didn't take us into having to legally form an entity that the government can then oversee and then direct what we can do or can't. So the Ashanti in Kurum Kurum is not a legal entity. We're not trying to become a 501c3, which is a part of an extension of this government. And there is now a legacy and infrastructure to ensure that the next generations will be able to keep these things as they have and then grow them in the direction where they stand on our shoulders to see much more than we were able to see. This has been just a galloping tour of Akan culture and the culture that has been able to be reinstituted in Philadelphia. Now we can take some of that, those parts and pieces and hopefully put them all together in a way that will revitalize our families and communities. And I would be remiss if I did not mention some names here, some shouts out. One, we have our matriarch of our clan, uh, Obapanin Jewel Ali. Obapanin means female elder. And I have my counterpart in the form of Nana Fua Afriye Chewa, who is the queen of Ashanti in Kurum Kurum. And uh, I've mentioned, again, my other teachers and instructors, and we have a host of elders and family members. All of them carry their weight. And uh, without them, they say, I am because they are, we are because we are. And so I acknowledge all of you in terms of your role that you played in establishing the Shashanti Nation on the shores of America. Thank you. And how can our listeners get more information about the culture, learning the language, and so forth? Uh, you can send an email to Asante Victory Town, spelled A-S-A-N-T-E-V-I-C-T-O-R-Y-T-W-N at AOL.com and we will get you in touch with uh, whatever you would like to know about the Akan culture as it manifests itself through the Ashanti in Kurum Kurum here in Philadelphia and beyond. Yes, and Brother Odrirofo has a website too, correct? Odrirofo, yes, is his title. Yes, and, and he can be reached or you can access his information at O-D-W-I-R-A-F-O dot com. That's O D. W A, I'm sorry, O D W I R A F O dot com. And there are a lot of the associations between the Akan and Kemetic cultures, uh, also known as ancient Egyptian histories, traditions, language, and so forth. And those things can be found on, um, on the Odwirafo website as well. And to repeat, you can email my guest for today, Nana Tuta, at Ashante Victory Town at AOL.com. That's spelled A S 
A-N-T-E-V-I-C-T-O-R-Y-T-W-N at AOL.com. And you can learn more about Akan history, culture, and language on the website of the Odwirafo at O-D-W-I-R-A-F-O.com. That's O-D-W-I-R-A-F as in Frank O.com. In closing, I wanted to ask two brief questions. With the experience that you had traveling between here, Ghana, and other places in the United States, what would you say is one of the greatest challenges facing Africans in America? Yes. One of the greatest challenges that I find, especially besides the challenge of trying to make African culture work in a very generic way, I, I, I liken that to having water, a well in your backyard, and it's in a certain area. And if we just go put the shovel in in two or three digs and then move to another area and put the shovel in two or three times and then we move to another area, we will never get to the water. Digging deep into who you are, your culture, uh, expression after you have re-identified is there to do. And that, to me, presents all types of challenges if we don't do that, even with the best of intentions. As it pertains to those of us that are traveling to the other side, we have to understand that they oftentimes don't realize that we came from family. They don't, with the best of intentions, they are embracing us. And they'll say, oh, no, you look like, uh, you know, you look like you're an Ajwa, you know, or you look like you're, you know, a, 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 a Kosia or whatever. When if you're not born on that day and you're not in the con, then therefore, much as they love you, for them to do that is harming you because they're putting energies on you that you may even try to live out if that's not who you are. And so, uh, and then oftentimes it can even be exploitive in that, you know, oh, you're my brother and sister, but oftentimes they view us as deep pockets over here and they would want us to come over here and do a lot of, I mean, over there and do a lot of infrastructure types of projects to help develop their particular areas. But the first thing that has to happen is we have to reconnect again as family. And so uh, the challenge is to go and be embraced and embrace your brothers and sisters, but never lose the knowledge that you're in pursuit of. And you're looking for those kindred spirits that can help you, whether you've already identified your bloodline and your ethnicity. You may be from Nigeria. You may be from Kenya, you know, uh, from that particular, those particular, and then whatever ethnicity that you are. So if you're coming out of, uh, it's not about Nigeria, it's are you a Yoruba? Are you uh, an Igbo? You know, there are, I say to people all the time, there's no such reality as Ghanaian culture. There are Akans born in, in Ghana. There are Gaz born in Ghana. We have to become Akans born in America and Yorubas born in America. And that is the missing link for us. And once we do that, the whole world will open up for us. And one final question, which I call my all power question. If you had all power such that anything that you decree will happen, what would you decree for Africans in America? I would, and it is interesting, the decree is part of my step-by-step -step mission. So I'm decreeing this and unfolding it gradually during my lifetime and others. That one, we as Africans that are born here on the shores of America understand that we were taken from families, we have bloodlines, we have spiritual connectors that will put us in line with who 
and what we are here to do. Secondly, that we are divine beings, and so therefore what we are designed to do is come from on high. Thirdly, that there is not us versus them on the other side, that we are one people, but we have been one people that have been fragmented. So constantly working towards having an understanding that we must come together and most importantly, that when we come together again, whether it's the Sankofa image as an, as an Adinkra symbol of the Akans or something that has the same inference or meaning to it, that we understand that we have to go back, clean up the, those pollutions and uh, misdirections that we've been given in terms of who we are as a people, unify as one people, bring our talents together on all sides of the oceans, and, and then become peaceful, productive, prosperous, collective beings once again. Once again, thank you so much. And in the Twi language, let me say, medase. And I want to say thank you also to our listeners. Endasi. And, I, and if, I'm, if I'm at the hour, I will say to you, we, can, we encourage you to continue what you're doing, Sister Njamele, because it is through vehicles like this that you allow these types of exposures to our people is part of the prophecy that says, this is the mechanism we have to use to get ourselves back together again. So please stay your course. Yes. That's it for this edition of Blood and Spirit. That's what it's about. Y'all have a good day. <laughs>